Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we are speaking with Rachel Simmons. Rachel works internationally to empower women and girls to be more authentic, assertive, and self-aware. The co-founder of Girls Leadership, she is a leadership development specialist at Smith College and is the Girls Research Scholar in Residence at the Hewitt School in New York. Today, we're discussing her book, Enough As She Is. So, Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, what do you mean by your title, Enough As She Is? Well, um, what I mean is that we have this paradox right now, which is that girls are doing better than they've ever done before. I'm the mom of a young girl, and I feel really lucky to be a mom of a girl in 2018 because I know that she's going to have every door open to her. And we know that teenage girls are getting great grades. They're going to college in unprecedented numbers. And yet, in the work that I do every day with adolescent girls, I see that there's a sense among many of them that they always need to be more than they are. So they're very hard on themselves. They think, you know, I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not getting enough likes on Instagram or whatever social media they're using. And I think that it's no coincidence that at the same time, we're seeing tons of anxiety and depression in girls at rates that we've never seen before. So something's not right with all the success that uh, girls are enjoying. So, you know, this is something that, that I've definitely observed when when I was growing up. And, and I don't know if this was just the way my family was, but I, I find that that girls are more involved in in things um you know they're doing a sport and a music and a dance and uh, you know they're they're doing tons and tons of stuff and not actually having time to be kids the way that that I did and um you know I I see this this pressure on them to to be the best and you know a friend of mine um taught uh, figure skating and one family wanted to take the girl out of figure skating because she wasn't winning not that she was enjoying the sport or anything but she wasn't number one and and that pressure I find um, is way different than what I experienced yeah and I I think you're right that one of the byproducts of all of this activity and like enrichment is that kids aren't hanging out because one of the other things we're seeing is loneliness among teenagers. I just wrote an article in the Washington Post about this. There was a study that came out that said that young adults are the loneliest group of people in America, lonelier even than the elderly, which is pretty crazy. I mean, if you think about the fact that like who more than teenagers has time to hang out with their friends? And so, you know, I think you're right that all of this activity, you might be having, um, you know, doing an after-school activity or playing a sport with your friends, but if you're not just, like, talking together, but you're engaged in some type of goal, um, I think that that's going to affect the quality of your relationship. So there are a lot of really negative results to all of this drive and ambition that so many of us are investing in our kids. So, um, you know, we talk in your book, you talk a lot about success. So what does that mean to the typical girl? What is success in their mind? That's a great question. I mean, I have been listening to young adults talk about stress and success for a long time, and certain themes began to emerge. And um, so one of the themes was that they often believe that if they are not constantly stressed out and overwhelmed, they're not working hard enough. In other words, the baseline for them is just to be always feeling like I can't keep up. In other words, they don't ever get to say like, okay, now I can chill or now it's okay. So the byproduct of that is that they feel they don't know how to have downtime. They don't feel that you can be successful and also have balance and rest. Now, here's another problem with that um, that I noticed that relates back to loneliness, which is that if you don't know what to do when you're not doing anything, you start to feel really anxious, right? It's like, it's like, oh, God, I don't know who I am or what to do when I'm not doing something. 
And I believe that's one of the reasons why young adults are saying they're lonely, because they actually don't know the difference between being alone or just not doing something and being lonely. You know, I, I think that that's an important lesson for, for everybody. Um, you know, this drive, I'm sure, comes from, from pressure from their parents. And I know, you know, when I finished school, I had a weird feeling if I wasn't studying or reading or doing something to, you know, make my mind better. And it took actually, you know, a, a serious illness to make me realize that, it was important to do nothing. And and it, it's now something that I schedule in my week. It's really important for me to have downtime. But I, I you know, when I have this conversation with a lot of my patients, they, they don't want to do that. They're very scared of it. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think that young adults often learn this, as you're pointing out, from us. I mean, this is, they, they are watching. I, when I work with parents, I say to them, listen, your kids, if all they see is when they come home from school, if all they see is you whirling around the house, cleaning and cooking and picking up and making phone calls, they are not getting any other message except that constant motion and doing means that I'm valuable and worthy. So what I say is, and I I often joke like, I don't really want to play shoots and ladders with my six-year-old. Like, I always make fun of shoots and ladders. But I also sit and make sure that she sees me just chilling with her to do that as a valuable use of my time. And, you know, I, I think that's an important lesson for all of us. But, you know, with, with the girls, um, you know, the expectations are obviously very different than they were in the 1950s, say. So what what is happening now that, that the girls are, are putting so much stress on themselves? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that's the kind of double-edged sword of all of the success that girls have achieved, which is that... You know, we've given new opportunities to girls and new possibilities. We've said, you can enter these fields that girls never used to be able to enter, thinking about things like, you know, sciences and engineering. Um, You can achieve things that were never an opportunity for girls to have. But what we didn't do was say, you can have all these new experiences, but don't worry about the 1950s or older expectations of, like, having this certain kind of body or being liked by everyone or even nowadays, you know, getting all of those likes on social media. What we did was we just lumped it all together and say, girls, you have to be everything. And I think it's no coincidence that adolescent girls get the least amount of sleep of any group of Americans. I mean, that's that's significant. And psychologists call this role overload. It's too many roles for one person to play. So what are the roles that they're trying to fill? Well, I think about, like, one of the best things to do, actually, if you're a parent, is just to, like, think about or even ask your daughter about what is her daily schedule? Like, what is she doing all day? And so you see that they're playing all of these different roles, whether it is the student or the kind of extracurricular activities person in a club yearbook or a school play or the athlete who joins a team. You see the girl as the friend who has to, you know, stay connected with and offer support to her friends. You see girls as the family member who have to be connected with and, you know, have meals with potentially people in their family. Um, And then, you know, after hours, there's lots of homework to do. And so all of these, and, and this is to say nothing, of course, of like if you're dating and you're trying to be sort of sexually um, exploratory in some way, it's just a lot of different things that girls are doing and trying always to do at the best level that they can. And I think that's where so much stress and overload is coming in. So what do you mean by that at the best level they can? What's happening? Well, you know, I, there's always this question of, like, are girls more perfectionistic than boys? I actually don't think that's true, and I don't think really much evidence exists to suggest that they are. But I do think that there's a, a way in which for, there's a couple of things that go on for girls that might not be as in play for boys. So one is that girls get a lot of powerful messages about how they are supposed to look, and they also get enormous attention about their appearance from a very young age, which 
I think both sends the message that a lot of their value will be in terms of how they appear, but also tells them that this is something they need to kind of actively work towards, whether it's putting together outfits or buying products that make them look a certain way. And so I think that creates a constant sense of like, I have to do better. I have to be better. Um, and then, of course, if you think about the prevalence of images on social media that show these sort of perfect images, not just of celebrities, but even their own friends posing in bathing suits, posing in certain ways, selfies, et cetera, that's going to create a sense of, like, I have to be more and I have to be the best. Um, the second thing that I think is very true for girls is that they are very much expected to worry about what other people think. And, you know, we, we raise girls to care about other people. We raise girls to be nice and, you know, to be selfless and to please others. And we keep them behaving that way by saying, you know, think about the girl who's too conceited and we say, oh, she's too big for her britches. So we teach girls to be these good girls. And that, in turn, makes it really scary for them when they fail because they worry that they haven't pleased someone. They worry that they've let someone down. And so both of those factors can really push girls kind of beyond a comfortable place of self-improvement and into something that is really self-critical and kind of unfair to themselves. You know, I've, I found it interesting when I was reading your book when you were talking about what's going on in, in a girl's head. And, um, you know, I think you really hit the nail on the head there as well that, you know, it's way more complicated than just, oh, I've got to win this thing. And, you know, there's a lot of self-negative talk and then a lot of worry and, and, and kind of going in, in circles as well. Maybe you can just tell us about how that what that is and how that's different from boys as well. Sure. Well, that's called overthinking or ruminating. And this is, again, another fairly significant gender difference in psychology. And basically, this this is like when you go around and around in your head about the cause of a problem or the consequence of a problem, but you don't really solve it. And for girls, this could look like, you know, is this person mad at me? And sort of worrying and wondering about that. Or why didn't they text me back? Or did I sound stupid today in class? Um, so ruminating happens in part because girls don't have as much permission to say what they think. If we expect them to be nice all the time, they learn over many years to kind of keep their strongest feelings to themselves, which is why they start thinking about everything. Um, and then girls start to often believe that, oh, well, if I'm thinking about something all the time, it must mean that I care about it. Like, maybe I'll get closer to solving it. But here's what we need to make sure girls understand, that ruminating actually diminishes your problem-solving skills. It diminishes your motivation. It makes you anxious because when we're overthinking, it's not because we're like thinking about something ha happy or positive. We're ruminating about usually something that is very self-critical. So we've got to teach girls to recognize it and to stop. Um, well, and so how, how do you go about doing that? So this is a tricky thing, and I can say as, like, a ruminator myself, you know, this is something you kind of have to actively play a role in. So the first thing is to teach girls to recognize when they're doing it. So, you know, are you do you find yourself thinking about certain things over and over and over again, kind of like a bad habit, like nail-biting? And then um, we have to teach girls strategies to stop. One of these could be any way that you get out of your head. So maybe it's doing something physical with your body, like working out. Maybe it's um, calling a friend and saying, like, I need to talk about anything but this person who I'm worried about. Um, another thing that is very successful with, with the girls that I work with is practicing self-compassion, which I write a lot about in the book. And that is practicing through a very clear, simple three-step um, process a way of being as kind to yourself when you're being mean to yourself as you would to a friend. Because, of course, and girls really connect with this idea, we're often so much nicer to our friends than we are to ourselves. So in my book, there's a range of strategies that girls can use. But the bottom line is you have to know when you're doing it. That's the first thing you've got to know. Well, and I, I found one thing interesting that you talked about in your book that not only do we do this in our heads, but we will actually call up a friend or hang out with someone and, and do it with each other. Yeah, it's so true. It's called it's called co-ruminating. And whenever I talk with a room full of parents about it, many of them start nodding and sometimes laughing because they're like, yep, that's me. I co-ruminate with my daughter. 
And in fact, so that so you as you pointed out, it's you you kind of talk with someone else over and over again about a problem, and you go around and around with them. And of course, not surprisingly, it's parents who are most likely to do this with their daughters because, of course, they're just trying to be like good supportive parents, not realizing that that kind of repetitive discussion is actually having the opposite effect. Well, that's interesting because I think we're we're taught that that's also, you know, listening to your friend and being supportive if you're listening to them complain about a situation and, and kind of agreeing with them and, as you say, ruminating with them. That's exactly right. And I think that's what makes this so tricky to stop because this is exactly how women and girls often bond, which is talking about their problems. That's oh, really interesting. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Rachel Simmons, and we're discussing her book, Enough As She Is. We'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. As we move into our 40s and 50s, the elements of age catch up with us just a bit. Many of us have had children, which brings some of their own aging elements. Health issues come and go, but they always seem to come more frequently. Our bodies start responding a little differently than they have in the past. Listen for the High Energy Hour with Donna Guinois. We'll help you understand the changes and how to keep your health in top shape as you age gracefully. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Rachel Simmons, and we're discussing her book, Enough As She Is. So, Rachel, one thing you talk about in your book, I think it's your first chapter, is um, the College Application Industrial Complex. Can you tell us what that is? Yes, that is like this ecosystem that kids as young as middle school enter in which they begin to understand that their worthiness as students will be decided on the day that they hear yes or no from the college of their choice, of their first choice. And so the complex is all of the pressure and kind of forces acting on young people that tell them that you've got to craft yourself into the most perfect specimen for college admission. And by the way, no one really actually knows what the criteria is to get in. I mean, you know you want to have good grades and good test scores and so on, but the criteria remain pretty mysterious, which in turn makes kids feel like nothing they do is ever enough. And so the race to be more and do more gets more and more exacting and also out of reach, um, which in turn can just make people feel basically worthless for not getting into the college that they want to get into. Um, And it can also drive a lot of loss of curiosity and risk-taking because if you're trying to be amazing and perfect all the time, you're going to stop taking risks. 
you're going to stop doing things where you might fail. Well, you know, I I found it really interesting to read about this. And you interviewed a lot of girls for this book. And, you know, some of them said, you know, you know, your risk taking your life is kind of over by the time you hit middle school or high school, because you have to focus on on this and you don't get to do those things that you enjoy or, um, you know, try new things. Exactly. And there's something really depressing. I just had another another student say that to me where, you know, that, that you're always trying to perform so that you get into the next great level of something. So, uh, you know, you want to get into the advanced math class in, in elementary school so that you can get into the advanced class in middle school and then take the AP in high school so that you, you're not really in it to learn. You're in it to achieve and perform. And while there's nothing wrong with kids wanting to perform, when that is the number one reason why you're trying to do something, you become both, you know, very self-critical and self-conscious because what you do is always about what other people think. So you're not really connecting with what you want, so you lose touch with that. You also, research tells us, become less resilient because if you're doing stuff to satisfy other people, external goals, then it's going to be a lot harder for you to stay tough when you get knocked down because it's not that desire to be in the game isn't coming from inside you. It's coming from a desire to please other people. Well, you know, it, I found it really interesting reading, you know, the, this part of your book where you're talking about girls being pressured also into careers that they didn't want. And, and you know, although um, I wasn't pressured into a career, I was pressured to go to school. And I didn't know what I wanted to do until I was 25. And I graduated high school when I was 17. So there was this you know, this career that I was in and the school that I spent money on that I didn't enjoy at all. And I I just wonder how many people are in, you know, $100,000 in debt and doing something that they don't want because it was expected of them. And, and, you know, how that's going to impact the rest of their lives. A hundred percent. And, you know, it's, uh, we're, you know, we're having this conversation um, in graduation season. And so this is a time where a lot of people who are graduating, whether from high school or college, feel that they have to have a plan. They have to know. And that's another byproduct of this system where you're always supposed to be on a intentional, kind of well-thought-out path where, as you point out, you know, it takes any young adult time to sort of wrestle with who they are and where they see themselves in the world. And also, most importantly, I think, like what they stand for, what gives them purpose and meaning. You don't just kind of acquire that automatically. And we certainly don't all acquire it at the same time. So it's one of the reasons why I tell parents, it's okay for kids not to have a plan. And we should encourage discomfort with uncertainty. I'm sorry, comfort with uncertainty. And we should encourage comfort with discomfort. Well, you know, and I, I definitely agree with that. And I think it's important for for us to redefine success. I mean, does success mean that you've got, you know, a good paying job and a house and a car? Or, or is success something that leads you to happiness? Yes, I think that's right. And, and, and I, again, I, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with wanting material, the material kind of pleasures that come with financial success, that's fine. But what we know from research is that when that is the number one driving goal for young people, that there is a certain amount of happiness they can get from having money. But ultimately, real happiness comes from having some meaning in your life, some purpose in your life, and certainly some sense of I'm doing something that I want to do that reflects who I am. Um, so again, nothing wrong with ambition and nothing wrong with wanting to make it big. It just can't be all about me, me, me making money. You know, I, I I agree with that. I don't think that, you know, that money brings happiness, although it brings some comforts and it, it's a nice side effect. Um, I, I think it's more important to to be doing something that brings you joy. Absolutely. And um, yes, we know from research that money can make you happy to a certain point. But actually, after a certain point, you know, having all the money in the world actually isn't going to make you that happy. No. So um, one, one thing that always comes up when we're talking about our adolescents is social media. How is this affecting our girls? 
Well, social media definitely has some gendered qualities, by which I mean there are certain aspects of social media that that seem to be affecting girls more deeply. Um, We know that girls really gravitate towards what's called visual platforms, so anything where you can display pictures. Um, And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one is we know that, as I said earlier, girls tend to get the message early that how they look will be um, either richly rewarded or punished, depending on on how much they comply with the culture. So social media gives you a platform to kind of show people how you look and how good a job you're doing with that expectation from the culture um, can can get you a lot of rewards in the form of likes and views and attention. Um, But the other thing that we see is that, you know, girls use social media as a way to spend time with their friends, as a way to tell other people about their friends. Um, It is an extension of girls' deep commitment to their friendships and, and kind of very long and deep interest in kind of who's friends with who and social media is a place where girls can do that where they can see each other doing that in a way that before they had access to that they couldn't see you know the problem is so I would just say a couple of things one is it's really important for parents not to demonize social media um, because really research doesn't tell us that it is using social media that is the problem but it's how kids use it so you know using it in the extreme um, using social media as a way to kind of define your self-worth of course these things are aren't going to be healthy, but there are ways to use social media that that can be healthy. Um, And the other thing that's important for parents to know is, like, you've got to ask your kid what they like about it and not bury your head in the sand and either demonize it or, you know, kind of try to plug your ears and, you know, have people wake you up when it's over. So what we know from research is that when parents play a mentoring role in their kids' lives around uh, technology, that their kids do better online. Um, but, but backing off and pretending it's not happening, that does not pay off at, at the end. So um, what, what is a healthy way to approach social media? Um, well, I mean, first of all, I think moderation is key. So I think any, any young person who's doing anything immoderately, whether it's eating or sleeping or studying, like just I don't want to oversimplify the parenting strategy here, but really making sure that there is a moderation to your child's use. Um, moderate use is going to be absolutely fine. Constant middle of the night waking up with a phone, going to sleep with a phone, you know, that is not being able to put your phone down at meals, not being able to put your phone down when you're talking to your friends. Those are not healthy uses of social media. Um, another thing we know is that when young people have a good even balance between how much media they create and how much media they consume, they tend to be happier. And all that basically means is, like, don't lurk, meaning, like, don't have, like, any kid who just spends all of her time looking at other people's Instagrams and never posting her own pictures is probably going to be flooded with feelings of, like, why don't I look like that or why is it my life like that? But they're not going to be getting any positive feedback on their own life. So you have to have a balance of sharing your own social media, posting your own stuff, and also consuming others. Well, you know, that's really interesting to hear that. Um, I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, my generation and older, we have some trouble understanding a lot of the social media and the selfies and stuff. But obviously, if you're growing up with it, it's it's different. It's more part of their culture to be part of this. So um, I like that you're, you're explaining that this balance is actually really important for the culture of what they're involved in so that we can all understand that. And I was also going to say, like, I feel like it's also really important to talk to your child about when she uses social media in the sense of, like, if you're not feeling good about yourself, if you're kind of feeling insecure or, you know, feeling like not so happy in some way, I wouldn't get recommend going on social media because that's when you see everybody's like happiest, most confident selves, which for many people, quite understandably, if they're feeling insecure, it's not going to make you feel better. So I think actually just talking about checking in with yourself, and I do this personally, like if I'm not in a good space, I try not to just sit there looking at everyone else's and like... You know, because adults do this too. Like everyone else's perfect family vacation and everyone else's like <laughs> happy anniversary with their spouse. Like I think we're kidding ourselves if we pretend that it's just kids that are doing this and not us too. So I try to sort of moderate my own use. If I'm not having a good day, I'm not gonna I'm gonna stay off that and try to find something else to do with my my mind. 
That's a really good point. Thank you for for sharing that. Um, I think it's a good uh, segue to also talk about body image because this media, not just social media, is a big uh, place where this is affecting girls. So, so what's you know what's still happening out there? Well, I think you know part of what we're seeing on social media, and I alluded to this earlier, is that. It used to be, like when I was younger, I if I wanted to consume images of sort of these idealized perfect bodies, I'd have to open a magazine. Like I'd have to go to the grocery store, which I did in the summer, and buy the magazines and like look at the pictures of the stars. So two things have changed. One is that any girl can pick up a phone or a tablet and she can look at photographs of celebrities with the touch of a button and floods and floods of those photographs, right? Not just like one or two in this week's issue of whatever, Um, But the second thing that's happened is that there's been this proliferation of girls um, posting their own images of their bodies. So, yes, it's a selfie, but it's the bikini selfie. And I follow a lot of girls on social media, and I just a couple summers ago started to notice this. And so one researcher, Jill Walsh at Boston University, has been looking at how that affects girls. And they actually tell her, like, it's not looking at a picture of my own friend in a, in a bathing suit can make me feel worse about my body. So that's what's really different with social media. It means that parents need to talk to their daughters about that and to say, like, you know, people, have you noticed that there's one kind of body being posted? Like, there isn't, like, a bigger body being posted. And what do you think that tells us? And how do you think it feels for girls who are waiting for feedback on their bodies? And, you know, how do you feel about the fact that only one kind of body is being celebrated? Well, you know, I I think it's not just the adolescent girls that are affected by that. I think we all are are trying to fit into this certain type that is um, impossible if especially if you're as involved in other things in life as these girls are trying to do everything, it's really difficult to have that, that balance and, and, um, you know, achieve everything to perfection. Absolutely. And and so I think one of the most important things that parents can do is just make sure that their daughters understand that your body primarily needs to be there to serve your goals and your dreams, not other people's goals and not other people's vision for you. And so that like what we eat and what we do with our bodies is about serving ourselves. And I think that's the message that girls don't get is that it's all about how do I look and how does the world see me and how does my body look compared to the expectations of others. Um, And, you know, I think as girls get older and their confidence drops, they really begin to hear that voice of how do I look instead of what do I need to make my body strong. Well, and and uh, there's a lot of, you know, body shaming, whether you're too skinny or you're too fat or, you know, you don't have the right thigh gap or, or you know, all that stuff going on. And I think it's important for us to, like you said, point out that there is only one type of body being posted and it's probably photoshopped or filtered. <laughs> and uh, it's not, and, and, you know, it's taken at a certain angle to look a certain way and it's not realistic. It it isn't realistic, and um, I think one of the best things we can do for girls is get them playing sports and get them involved in activities that encourage them not just to, like, live in their own bodies and, like, use their bodies, but but feel feel the confidence that comes with being in charge of your body and using your body to achieve a goal that isn't about how I look, but that's about, like, my body can shoot a basket or kick a soccer ball or ride a bike. Um, and, and I think when girls connect with not just, as you point out, like the photoshoppiness of everything and the fakery of everything, um, because that does matter, but also when they can connect with just the incredible power their bodies have um, as agents in the world, like that can be very transformative for girls. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Rachel Simmons, and we're discussing her book, Enough As She Is. We'll be back shortly. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent 
inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere, Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere, the Simpson Protocol, airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio comes in. Join Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin, breast cancer survivors and advocates. They help by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Rachel Simmons, and we're discussing her book, Enough As She Is. So, Rachel, um, you know, we talked a lot about social media and body image, but it seems to me from your book that there's other pressures as well. There's pressures, um, you know, in school and intellectual pressures. So what does that look like for girls? Um, I mean, I think what what it really comes down to is a sense that like it's all about my, my GPA and it's all about um, you know how well I've done on a test and so I think that can send so many girls on a real roller coaster of you know I am only as good as, as how well I did to, on this test and I think so many girls walk around often suffering from imposter syndrome which is something that we often associate with adults but I, what I actually have learned is that it is very firmly in place by adolescents and that basically means that you know you can be in a position of strength you can be somebody who other people look up to and respect as many of these girls can be right especially the successful ones but the girls themselves feel like they're frauds. They worry they're not as smart as they, you know, as other people think that they are. They worry that people are going to find out they're not that smart and they won't get into the right class or college. Um, And that sense of not feeling like they belong can really do a number on their confidence. And so some of the pressure, in other words, ends up being very invisible um, and ends up being the byproduct of all of this pressure to achieve can just make people feel like, well, maybe I'm just not enough and maybe I don't really belong here. So how how does this happen that we don't feel like we we belong in a place where you know we've earned it because one of your stories was someone who you know had gotten into to college or uni and, and then she she felt like this that she didn't belong there so what happens that 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 feeling gets there Well I think part of it is about um in a way it's it's being so hard on yourself that you only can think about your success in terms of like being amazing or being a failure. In other words, you don't have flexibility around your own setbacks. You don't look at your setbacks with a degree of like, I don't know, accommodation or like, okay, so this didn't go well, but this doesn't mean that I'm not smart. People who have imposter syndrome often will judge themselves so harshly that it doesn't take a lot for them to be like, well, I guess I don't belong here. So in other words, one of the 
solutions for dealing with imposter syndrome is to both recognize that not only is it normal for you to not be perfect and make mistakes, but that everyone around you is also struggling with that. Um, But the more you hold yourself to this black and white kind of expectation of either I'm a success or a failure, it's very easy to decide I must not belong here. So, so these kinds of feelings, is this something that, that girls talk to their friends about or are they just more ruminating instead of talking about what's actually going on? So I think one of the kind of privileges for me of writing this book and talking about it in schools to girls is just helping them have a language for this. Because I think some of them might talk with their friends about it, but others may not because they think they're the only one. So a really wonderful thing happens when you give this a name, which is that all these other girls, you can see that some of them are just kind of heaving a sigh of relief and being like, oh, it's not just me. Like, I thought I was the only one. So that actually ends up being one of the really kind of best interventions. And then once they understand that it's a thing, then they can begin to more comfortably articulate it, you know, talk to a friend about it. And in the book, I talk a lot about, you know, that that reaching out to a friend to say, I feel like an imposter today is a very important part of um, of dealing with your imposter syndrome. So is there a way that girls can what it, say, you know, I, I reached out to a friend and said that to them? Um, I think that the most common response would probably be some ruminating. So what is what is the correct response if there is one when when somebody's opening up to about this? Um, I think when someone says that, like it's very important to try to show them or point them to evidence that contradicts their their assumption about themselves. So if I say to you, like, I feel like such an imposter, like, I I don't, who am I to help parents raise their girls? You know, there are so many other people who do this better than I am, and clearly I'm a fraud. What you might say to me is, well, let's talk about the evidence that, that, you know, is that really true, Rachel? You could say, like, you know, you've written a couple books that people really like, and just by the fact that they've been bestsellers, like, that's a sign that you actually do have something to offer. Like, it's not like somebody, one person bought all those books. Like, lots of people thought you were worth listening to. It doesn't mean that there aren't things about about me that I might not want to, like, change. But this idea that I'm an imposter, usually there's evidence, in other words, to refute that. So I think that's one thing you can do. I think the other thing that you can do, if I say that to you, is you could say, you know, we all have a voice inside of ourselves that that questions whether or not we're really deserved to be where we are, but that doesn't mean that it's true. Like, we all have these voices that say things to us, but we don't have to listen to those voices. We don't have to identify with those voices. We can just say, hey, thank you for sharing. Like, and there's a bigger part of me that knows that that's just a sign of me feeling scared or insecure or small. You know, I, um, Though I can definitely relate to this, it, it seems almost silly when, when you say it that way, that we have a voice inside ourselves <laughs> that is saying these horrible things to us, that we don't belong or that we're not good enough or that we're too fat or or whatever it is that we're experiencing that that we, you know, <laughs> that, and, and I get that we're all in this position, but it's almost absurd to think that we do this to ourselves. You know, I think there's lots of, you know, um, people who've tried to understand why do we have that voice. You know, some people say it's an evolutionary voice that's trying to protect us. It's like, hey, watch out, you know, don't get too fat or, or like the animals will chase you and eat you. If you think about, you know, a gajillion years ago, human beings trying to survive, you know, um, you don't deserve to be where you are, so you better, like, protect yourself. Like, in other words, there are functions to this voice that aren't always bad um, or certainly weren't many years ago. Even now, you know, self-criticism or just even fear in the face of a challenge, that that can be good fear that tells us, you know what, maybe I shouldn't jump off that roof into that swimming pool. I'm just making a joke here. But, like, that probably is, like, fear I should listen to versus, oh, I can't do this thing, this project that I want to do because I'm, I don't know enough about it to really take this risk, which is not fear worth listening to. So it's complicated. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that it has no purpose, but we do have to be able to tell the difference between that voice and kind of who we are as whole people. Yeah, it, it definitely gets very complicated. And I, I can see, you know, 
especially if you're an adolescent or even an adult, I think we're stuck in this and we don't realize that we're doing this to ourselves or we're sacrificing certain things to this voice. Um, And our lives could be different if if we don't listen to it or give in to it or even if we're just not so hard on ourselves, but it's so hard to first of all recognize that we're doing it and then to even change that once we do. Right. And keep in mind, and this has been true for me too, that like sometimes it feels weirdly easier to be hard on yourself and to just believe that voice than to break out of it and be like, well, maybe that's not true. For some of us, being mean to ourselves or um, just self-critical is familiar. And because it's familiar, it's like a habit. And so sometimes it's a lot harder to open yourself to the possibility that, like, actually, maybe that habit you've been engaging in or that that dialogue that you've repetitively told yourself is true is not true. Sometimes the, the irony is it's harder to be kinder to ourselves than it is to be mean to ourselves. Yeah, I definitely agree. There's also, you explain something in your book about how girls are supposed to be humble. So there's almost, um, it's expected that they will be hard on themselves because they don't want to stand up there and say, well, I won the race. So, you know, they're going to play it out a little bit differently. That's right. And and actually, there's um, just a lot of social pressure to not, it's not just to, to be shy about your accomplishments, but actually to, like, put yourself down. And, you know, I, I, I often kind of joke that you, you rarely see a group of teenage boys standing outside around a classroom after an exam saying, wow, I totally failed that test. No, I failed that test. No, I failed that test. Like, you don't see that. It's, it's much more of a female ritual of communication. And as you said, it's, it's kind of a way of, of being humble and modest. But actually, if you tell yourself those things over and over again, like I failed or I'm not that smart, ultimately you can start to believe it. Well, and, you know, it's interesting that, that the boys are, are different. This is just ingrained in the girls. Um, why, why do you think that is? Um, well, I do think a lot of it has to do with the expectations that girls have around taking care of other people. So if you're supposed to be the good girl who is selfless and who is, um, you know, trying to please others, then, you know, showing off or claiming your talents or owning your successes, that feels like a violation of that expectation. Right? That's not a very good girl thing to do, to be like, I'm a great soccer player, because then you might be kind of overshadowing someone else. So being humble and keeping our achievements to ourselves is a way that we satisfy that pressure in the culture to be the good girl who puts everyone else before herself. Well, and so you talk about self-compassion, um, and I, which I think relates to this. So can you explain what that is? Sure. Self-compassion is probably like one of the most important breakthroughs in positive psychology, which is basically just the science of how we become more well human beings, um, maybe, you know, in in a generation. And self-compassion is, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's the practice of treating yourself with as much kindness as you would treat another person who is suffering. There are three steps. Um, to having self-compassion or to practicing it, I should say. And self-compassion has been linked to everything from a decline in stress, um, an elevation of happiness, a decline in anxiety, an elevation in motivation and performance, which I add at the end here because I think a lot of people believe that, oh, if I'm kind to myself, I'm not going to work well anymore. Like I'm going to fall apart and never do my work again. But it's actually the opposite. Um, so the three steps are the First is mindfulness, which basically means, like, if you're being hard on yourself about it, instead of judging it and being like, oh, I'm so stupid or, like, my my life is over, everything's a mess, mindfulness basically means, like, how do you feel? Just say how you feel. Like, I'm scared or I'm frustrated or I'm really suffering right now without denying it or without exaggerating it. And then the second step is self-kindness, which is... Pretty simply to just ask yourself, like, if someone you loved was treating themselves the way you're treating yourself, what would you say to that person? And now just say that to yourself. And then the third and final step is called common humanity, which basically means are you the only person who is struggling with what you're struggling with? Or do you know others who might be feeling what you're feeling? 
Or are you aware of other people who might have struggled in the way that you're struggling? And that last step is key because when we say to ourselves, I'm the only one, like I'm the only one who feels stressed about money or I'm the only one who, you know, has screwed up in a relationship in this way, then we're flooded with shame and we don't really want to fix the problem. We just want to sort of curl up and disappear. So mindfulness self-kindness and common humanity are the three steps of self-compassion. And there's much more to be learned about it in my book and in others. Well, I, I love that, that you're saying that because people talk about mindfulness a lot. Um, but, you know, I, I find it just brings us aware and then we need more steps after that, which seems like you've got that, um, you know, laid out for people. It's not just being aware that it's happening, but how can you change that so that, mm-hmm. um, you know, eventually you're being easier on yourself? Yeah, Absolutely. So um, do you have any uh, just quick advice for any parents who are listening about how they can um, help their daughters um, with this phenomenon? Well, with with the enough as she is phenomenon in particular? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I would say it's very, very important for parents actually to model self-compassion. So when your daughter sees you navigating the world in a way that isn't intensely self-critical, but like when you make a mistake, you're not, you don't say things like, oh, I'm such a failure, or I'm so stupid, but you say something kind to yourself, like not that you're not accountable, but that you don't beat yourself up. That's a very powerful lesson for a girl to observe. Another thing you can do in this area is just share your mistakes with your daughter. Like understand that if you can show your daughter that you screw up and that you survive and that you still regard yourself as a smart kind of good person in the world, you are scripting her, you're teaching her to navigate her mistakes in the same way. And the reality is when girls have resilience around their mistakes and when they can be kind to themselves when they experience setbacks, they're not going to be as obsessed with the need to be perfect, right? They'll be able to tolerate not being perfect. That's great. Um, So if anybody wants more information, is there any way they can get a hold of you or your book? Yes, please visit my website, rachelsimmons.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Rachel J. Simmons. And I also have a great group on um, Facebook called Changemakers. It's a private group for parents and educators. And you can access it at rachelsimmons.com slash changemakers. Well, that's perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great show. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Today we were talking with Rachel Simmons. Uh, Her book is Enough As She Is. I just want to thank everybody for listening and be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 